It's good to see you today. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. As you're turning there, I want to tell you about a new series that we're going to be launching in a couple of weeks. So two weeks from today, we're going to be launching uh, a new series in Genesis. And I just want to see a show of hands. Um, how many of you have ever wondered in the midst of a certain set of circumstances, God, where are you? Seems like you're a million miles away. Yeah. How many of you, uh, this, is, this is kind of a personal question, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. How many of you have ever been hurt by a family member or a really close friend? Raise your hand. How many of you have ever just been puzzled by why certain things have happened in your life the way that they have? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's all of us, church. And so this series that we're going to be kicking off in a couple of weeks is called When Life Doesn't Make Sense. And we're going to be spending several weeks, probably uh, seven to eight weeks in the book of Genesis. And we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. And Joseph was an amazing uh, character. I think he, I think. The story that God wrote through his life is the most amazing story in the entire Old Testament. And he was betrayed by his brothers. He was, he was falsely accused. He spent time in, in prison for a couple of years. There's just so many things. He had family dysfunction, the, all, the, all of that. And yet God used it for great good in his life. And so what we're going to be doing is spending most of the summer just walking through that story so that we can find our story uh, as we see what, what God is doing in our life. So that's going to start in a couple of weeks. I want to just encourage you. I've been working on it. I'm excited about it. I, wanted, I want you to just be thinking about somebody that you can invite. We're going to have um, those out in the foyer passing out invite cards for you just to connect with your family members and friends and, and really invite them for this series. So everybody get it? All right, very good. Well, we are in week four of a series uh, that we are right now in called Man Up. And um, we are talking about this whole question of what is a godly man? That's kind of what we're, we're dialing in on from Scripture. What, what, is, what does it mean to be a godly man? And our, kind of our theme verse, if you remember, is 1 Corinthians 16, uh, verses 13 and 14. And, and uh, we're going to put it up on the screens. And I'm just going to have you read it out loud with me. So uh, everybody just read this with me. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. All right, so we've been looking at this verse and talking about it um, every week for the past few weeks. And it's interesting because in this verse, the Apostle Paul's writing to the Corinthian Christians and he tells them he wants them to be strong. Now the question is, well, what does it mean to be strong? What does that really look like? What does he intend for them to understand when he's telling them to be strong? Now, I think typically what comes to our mind when we hear, you know, that, that exhortation to be strong, we, we think of physical strength, right? We think, of, we think of the incredible Hulk. That's what we think of when we think of uh, strong. And so you remember that television show? I think I was in sixth grade when that thing was on. But, uh, and so, yeah, we think of physical strength. What about... You know, when you hear the words, when you hear the word be strong, a lot of us immediately think of having a, a position or power or authority because of your position. You know what I mean? Uh, and when I was thinking about this, the person that immediately came to mind was Dwight K. Schrute. That's who came to my mind. 
He is, he's the guy that says, you better do what I tell you to do because I am the assistant regional manager. And then uh, his boss corrects him and says, no, you're the assistant to the regional manager. And so he's this guy that's always on this power trip and he's always trying to flex his, his uh, positional strength. I, I think another thing that could come to your mind when it comes to strength is just possessional strength. And what I mean by that is just having a lot of money, having a lot of wealth. And certainly money will buy you a lot of authority and of a lot of clout in society. And it makes you a very powerful person. I, I think that immediately who comes to my mind where this is Jeff Bezos. He's the richest man in the history of the world and he's not letting up anytime soon. This guy is filthy loaded and, uh, and he has a lot of power uh, as a result of, of running one of the most uh, profitable businesses on the face of the earth. I think if you talk to Jewish people back in Jesus' day and you ask them specifically about the coming Messiah that they were expecting and how, how they would describe the Messiah, they would first and foremost tell you the Messiah would be very strong because he, according to their expectations, he was going to kick the Romans out of occupation in Israel. He was gonna get rid of them and that would make their day. And not only that, but he would take his position of authority and rule the world. He would rule Israel, and he would rule the world when he came. And, uh, and then obviously with that comes all the wealth and all of the possessions. Now, here's what's fascinating. That's how the world describes strength today. That's really how the world views what it means to be strong. But what's fascinating to me is Jesus didn't define it that way. What we're going to see today is Jesus completely redefines what it means to be great, what it means to be strong, what it means to be significant. He turns it completely on its head. And that's what we're going to look at today in, Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel chapter 20. And what we're going to do is read verses 17 through 28. And I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you stand together for the reading of the Word of God. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say to, the, say to these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm, I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But, but Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, 
And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It stands forever. You may be seated. I, th- I think the key verse is verse 28 where, where, Luke, where Matthew tells us, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. I think what I think what we're what we what we see in this passage is that Jesus came to be a servant. What we see is that Jesus defines greatness not in how much power you have, not in how much stuff that you have, not in what your position is in life, but Jesus defines greatness in terms of your willingness to be a servant. So he completely flips it on its head. He, he completely goes against the grain of what, it, of what it means to be great in the world and says, if you really want to be great, you'll be a servant. If you really want to be first, you will be a slave. Now, here's the problem, church. The problem is, is we, we like to be served. The problem is we don't really feel like serving. That's really the problem. In fact, we're addicted to being self-absorbed and, and self-obsessed and, and, and self-focused. We're just kind of consumed with us. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why so many men are struggling today is because our culture bombards us with the thought that we are the center of the universe. And our culture tells us that the definition of manhood is, is really realized through sexual conquests through your social status or your social media status, that manhood is is defined by your athletic achievements or even just using your physical aggression to get whatever you want. That's how I would say the culture defines manhood today. I would call that toxic masculinity. And what's ironic about that is as our culture frowns upon a toxic masculinity, they also call for it by defining a man by those very same terms. Isn't that interesting? And so what Jesus says is that's not it at all. That it's not about what the world says. Manhood is not about what the world says. It's about being a servant. And so we're bombarded with this message of me, myself, and I, and that we are the center of the universe. There's an interesting book by an author, Milton Rokich. It's an older book. Uh, it's The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. And it's, uh, it's, he, in that book, he tells the story of these three guys, Leon, uh, Clyde, and Joseph, and they all three have a, a, a psychiatric disorder. They are institutionalized in a psychiatric institution and Rokich is counseling them he's trying to treat them and their psychiatric condition is they have a messiah complex they really do they believe that they are they are Jesus Christ reincarnated these three guys do they believe that they're God and he believes that he can help them through counseling just meeting with them and he does and he works with them and he's working with them and he's not making any progress at all And these guys believe that they are the center of the universe. And finally, he just gets kind of frustrated with them. He doesn't know what else to do to try to help them because they're not making any progress at all. And finally, he just makes the determination that that he's just going to put all three of them together. 
So they're going to they're gonna eat together. They're going to they're gonna sleep in the same dorm room, and they're going to go to counseling together. Because Rokich is thinking to himself, if, if somebody believed that they were God, and they were confronted with other people that believed that they were God, surely they would come to see there can't be that many gods, so they would, they would be healed. Well, that's not exactly what happened. But in the book, he talks about these fascinating conversations that he would get into with these three guys. And one of the patients would say, I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. I've been sent into the world to save the world. And Rokich would ask him and say, well, who told you that? And, and the patient would say, well, God told me that. And one of the other patients would chime in and say, I told you no such thing. <laughs> who told us, men, that we're the sinner of the world who told us that where did we get this messiah complex from because i'm telling you today there are a lot of men living this way and your life just doesn't get traction when you're living life and and relating to other people in such a way that you're the center of the universe it just doesn't work it misfires all the time i was reading about these young missionaries to kampala uganda they were just young and excited and vibrant, and, and uh, this was a number of years ago. These, these missionaries started praying as they were in the, Kampala is a huge city, about a million people. And so they're in this huge city, and they're just praying, God, will you show us a way that we could reach this, this people? You show us a way that we could minister and, and make an impact for the, for the kingdom of God. And uh, this was at the end of Idi Amin's brutal reign of terror in this country. And so it was war-torn country, and... and uh, and so as a result of the civil war in the country, the city had stopped all city services. So they were no longer collecting trash in the city. So you can imagine a city of a million people for months, trash isn't being collected. So it just begins to pile up in huge piles all over the city. So these young missionaries, they get an idea. They go to the health minister of the city and they say, will you let us have a couple of garbage trucks? We'll go around and start collecting the trash and hauling it out. And so there were 140 trash trucks that the city had, but 138 of them weren't working properly because they had been uh, the scavenged for parts to use in the war. But there were two that were working, and the health minister said, sure, go ahead and take it. So these young missionaries take these garbage trucks. They hang banners on each side of them proclaiming the name of Jesus. They drive the garbage trucks in the center of Kampala, India, where the biggest trash pile is. And these missionaries get on top of this rat-infested, stinking trash heap. And they start loading trash into the back of this trash truck. Well, I'm just here to tell you that Africans in Kampala, Uganda, had never seen white people collect trash in their city streets before they're like what in the world's going on here because usually when when the white man shows up in Africa he's there to exploit them not serve them so this huge crowd buzz starts going through the city huge crowd shows up these missionaries are on top of this trash heap they're singing hymns to Jesus and people are just like what in the world's going on so reporters show up they're going to do a newspaper story on one of the reporters goes up to the missionaries and says this has to be some kind of political stunt here this has to be some political movement, some political party. Which political party uh, are you a part of? What do you call yourselves? And the young missionaries looked at him and said, we just call ourselves the kingdom of God. We just call ourselves the kingdom of God. You see, in the kingdom of God, we're not the center. But you know what? We, we fall into this trap of thinking that we are. 
And so what I want to do today is just in a few minutes, I want to challenge our men today to man up by putting a towel around their arm and kneeling down and choosing to be a servant and choosing to recognize who is the center and to serve him. So I think what we see in this passage is Jesus really giving us we're showing us two great truths about service in the kingdom of God. I think, I think what he does is he shows us the radical path of servanthood. And I think what Jesus does specifically is shows us the real power to servanthood, real power to become servants. In other words, the measure of a man is not in what we have. It's not in what we accomplish. It's, it's in our willingness to serve. That's the measure of man. And I think that's what we're going to see here. So let's look at this radical path of servanthood that Jesus lays out in, in Matthew 20. Now, let me just kind of set this up for us. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. He's walking with the disciples. This is the last go around. This is the last time. He's going to the cross. He knows it. He's going to die. He knows that. He pulls the disciples aside and he says to them, guys, I need to tell you something. I'm going to be handed over to the Jews. I'm going to be I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be convicted, I'm going to be handed over to the Romans, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be crucified. And so he's explaining this to them. And he's been with them for three years and it's taken them a while to kind of latch on to this and get this. And, and, and so right in the middle of all this, this lady walks up, this mom walks up. She's the mother of James and John. And she, she goes up to Jesus and her sons are with them. James and John are with them. And the disciples are standing there. And she says, she says, Jesus, you know this kingdom that you're talking about? And Jesus says, yeah. And, and she says, well, I just have one request. And, and Jesus is like, what is it? Will, will you allow my sons, you know, one to sit on your right and one to sit on your left? And it was just kind of an awkward silence over the place. Just kind of like, right out of the blue. He's just talked, he's just told them he's going to die brutally. And it like goes over their heads. And so she makes this incredible request. Now, some of the commentators, some scholars think that this mother was Mary's sister. So there, there could have been a family connection that led her to believe that she had kind of that inside track into position and power and prominence in the kingdom and she saw her sons as rising stars in this in this new team that Jesus was building and so they they fully expected that Jesus would kick the Romans out and that he would set up his kingdom on the earth and so she kneels before him and says will you just please remember you know my sons and let them and let them sit on your right and on your left now, I just happen to think that this is the first case of lawnmower parenting in the history of the world right here. This is it. You guys know what lawnmower parenting is? This is when the parents hover over their kids so much that they go before them like with a lawnmower, smoothing out the, smoothing out the path to make it as easy and as comfortable as they can be for their kids. I think that's what she is. She is the original lawnmower parent here. And so, uh, but it's fascinating to me that all the disciples been hanging with Jesus for so long and they still don't get the kingdom of God. They still don't get it. They're still defining greatness and strength by position and possessions and, and uh, power and, and, uh, 
and the like. So let's, let's look at how Jesus responds to this. Look at verse 22. Jesus said, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. He's like, you have no idea what you're talking. You have no clue what the kingdom of God is like. That's the essence of what he's saying. You have no idea. And then he says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? Now, church, that, that phrase, the cup, is an Old Testament concept. And it means the wrath of God. It means the judgment of God. That's exactly what it means. He is sending a message to them that he is about to do something huge that we know from hindsight is he's going to be the substitute. He's going to take our place. He's going to drink the cup we should have taken because it was our sins that put him on that put him on the cross. So he's going to take our place. And he's signaling that, but it goes right over their heads. Because notice what, notice how they respond in verse 23. Or uh, in verse 22, they said to him, we are able. We can do it, Jesus. We got that. I, I don't know if they just didn't under, understand what he was saying or they just missed it or what. But they, they think he's testing them and they need to pass the test with all the affirmative. And, he, and they look at him and say, we're able to do this. And isn't that how the world defines strength and, and greatness today? By self-sufficiency? We can do it. Isn't that the American dream? I don't need anybody else. I can be a success. I can achieve. I don't need anyone else. I can do it all by myself. It's all about what I want and what I can do. That's called self-sufficiency. And what it does, church, is it blinds us to the kingdom of God. It blinds us to the work of God in the world. And so then he counters with them in verse 23. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. They won't be a substitute, but they will, they will drink his, his cup of suffering. But to sit at my, my right hand and my left is not for mine to grant, but it is for those whom it's been prepared by my Father. So Jesus recognizes that this is something that only the Father establishes. And he's established it from the foundation of the world. Look at verse 24. He says this, uh, Matthew records, and when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, you know why they were indignant? Because they didn't ask him first. That's why. They were all thinking it. They had already thought in their mind, you know, let's make a mental note to, you know, get our good position and, and when all this goes down. They're ticked off. She got there first. That's what they're mad at. But notice how Jesus handles it. Verse 25, but Jesus called to them and said, you know. Now think about that. You know. You know how the world works. We all know how the world works. We all know what the world tells us that, that is the secret to greatness and significance. And strength. We know that. We know that it's better to be served than to serve. We all know that. I mean, no kid grows up wanting to be the pool guy. You grow up wanting to hire the pool guy. Can I get an amen to that? You, you know, you don't, you don't grow up wanting to be the chef. You want to you wanna grow up so that you can hire the chef to work for you. That's how the world works, you know. 
That's what Jesus says. We all know this is how the world operates. This is where the, this is where the world is going. And that's, that's what he says. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Because that's how the world defines greatness. Is being on top. Being the man with the most toys. That's what he's saying. And he says this. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. For my disciples, it's not, that's not the way. I'm inverting it. I'm flipping the script. Notice how he flips it. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. It's interesting that he uses this word slave. There was not a lower position in Middle Eastern society in that day than a slave you couldn't get any lower than that the only thing lower than that was dead and Jesus is saying if you want to be first in the kingdom you've got to be a slave you got to be a servant that that is the secret to greatness you you want eminence in the kingdom you want strength in the kingdom you want power in the kingdom you want greatness in the kingdom then that only comes through lowliness and humility that's where it comes from and that's what Jesus is doing is he's calling his disciples to man up by kneeling down and being a servant. Now let's just, let's just apply this for a minute. You know that it's a scientific fact that men are stronger than women physically, right? We know that. Um, men have, um, they have a denser bone mass than women. Uh, men have uh, greater muscle capacity than women. Uh, men have a larger heart and larger lungs, a larger cardiovascular capacity uh, than, than women. Uh, men can watch more TV than women. And it's, a, it's just a proven fact. Uh, give them a remote control and they will show you every single time. So it is, it is an absolute scientific fact. Now, we live in the crazy world of our culture today that says there are absolutely no differences between men and women. Can you believe that? Like just ignore science, ignore biology, ignore the created order, and let's just pretend that everybody's, everybody's the same. It just doesn't work. Now my question is this, men. Why in the world did God create men to be physically stronger than women? Why? You know why? Because men, God has called us to be prophets, priests, leaders, lovers, providers, and protectors. In other words, he's called us to be servants. To serve our spouse, to serve our wife, and to serve our family. That's why he's, that's why he's given us physical strength. In other words, physical strength is not to be used to dominate women, but to demonstrate to women the love of Jesus. That's the reason why God has made us strong. But the world has forgotten it and has abandoned that altogether. And if you want to be a great husband and you want to be a great father and you want to be a great leader in your business and your, your community, you will live a life of service because that's how the King of Kings and Lord of Lords defines greatness right there. That's what he's saying. Now we see this in Ephesians. There's absolutely no question about it. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul writes to the husbands. He's getting very practical. He's getting right in the trenches with us. Husbands, what does he say? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for that she might be holy 
and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. But what does he do? He nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. What does Christ do for the church? He serves her. Men, what are you called to do? Serve her. That that's the mark of greatness. That's your holy position. Now, let's just apply it in the area of marriage, and because that, that's where the Apostle Paul is applying this. Uh, can I do a little premarital counseling uh, this morning? Can I, it, and I, obviously, I'm going to do some postmarital counseling too. So uh, let me do a little premarital counseling. Men, you're, you're not married yet. You're thinking about it one day. You know, it's kind of way on down there. Let me just tell you, men, marriage is a call to come and die. That's what marriage is. Now, you laugh. I didn't really mean that to be funny. So, um, but it really is a call to die. It's not about you. And, and the longer you're married, hopefully you, you get that picture. It's not about you. And I think what we see in America today is, is really over the last 25 years, a very troubling trend of the way parents are raising kids today. Uh, there's the, you know, the lawnmower parenting. There's the helicopter parenting where the goal of parenting today seems to be uh, to be their kids' best friends and to protect them from bad decisions, to protect their kids from failure, to protect, to insulate their kids from the hard lessons of life. And what this does is it puts our kids, particularly our boys, up on a pedestal that says to them, you're the center of the universe. And I think what's happening today with young men entering into marriage, they enter into marriage having cultivated this perspective and this mindset that they're the center of the world. They enter into marriage and that just doesn't work in marriage. They're not the center of their marriage. They, they live their life thinking every, it's all about me. I'm the center. It's me, myself, and I. But it just doesn't work. Do you know why? Because Jesus is, should be the center. And we should be moving to the side to let him take that central place. And you've heard me say over and over again that marriage is not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. And that holiness leads to joyfulness when you embrace servanthood. That's where it goes. You don't have joy in your marriage. You need to start serving. You need to embrace the call of servanthood. And so you will experience it. I think about men when you start a family. Oh man, you start a family, that is a call to die. That's what that is. Um, the minute uh, you uh, and your, your wife conceive a little one, uh, you've made a commitment that you're gonna die. That's it. Um, at the moment of conception, you begin giving your life away immediately. You really do. You give away your energy. You give away your sleep. Uh, you give away your freedom. Why? Because you got to feed them and care for them and take care of them. And you've got to read them, you know, books every night when you tuck them in. You've got 1,500 books on the shelf, but they've got to read that one book over and over and over again. You know what I mean? Uh, you lose all of that. Um, you do. And you, you pour into them, you, you give yourself to them, you give your blood, your sweat, your tears. You do this for so long, for 25 years you do it. 
And it's hard work. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's a call to come and die, but it is a holy calling. And church, what it means is, men, what it means is it's just not about you. It's about you investing yourself in them, getting them ready so that they can go out and invest and serve and build, and build the kingdom later on. That's what it's about. And I will say this, man, if you don't make that commitment to be a servant, Man, you will pay a terrible price when your kids get older. I will just tell you that. And so that's what marriage and family is all about, man. It's about serving others where Jesus is central. That's what it's about. And I think that's what Jesus is really trying to communicate to us there. So that's the path. And it's radical because I'm just telling you, church, the culture's not going to call you to do this. The culture is going to bombard us with a message that says it's all about you. Fulfill your dreams. You get to self-actualize. Do what you want to do. Make yourself happy. That's what the world's going to tell us to do. That's why this path is absolutely radical. Now, Jesus in this passage also gives us the real power to become servants. He shows us the real power to servanthood. I mean, I, I think the question then becomes, how does this kind of Copernican revolution in the soul really take place where we begin to realize Jesus is sinner, not me? How do, we, how do we realize that? How do we take the place of servanthood in our marriage and in our family, in our community, in the church? How, how do we do that? Where does that come from? Does it come from me just kind of guilting you into this? You know, if I could just guilt you hard enough and long enough, if I could scold you hard enough and long enough, you'll take that step into that? Would that work? No, doesn't work. If, if we just all kind of look to Jesus as our example, as our moral example, and I handed out WWJD bracelets today and said, men, hey, this week, let's just do whatever Jesus would do. And let's just really focus on him as our example. Would that work? I don't think so. Because the disciples have been with Jesus over three years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All they've seen him do is serve, and they're still jockeying for position. So apparently, his example hasn't rubbed off on them enough to this point. So, so what is it, what is it that, that can cause us to have this kind of change? I, I think it goes back to verse 28 I, I think we see it here it's this even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many I think that's the key I think that is the power for us to take that step and say you know what I'm going to be a servant I'm going to man up by kneeling down I'm going to put the towel over my arm and I'm going to serve I think it comes through recognizing that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for you and for me. That's, that's what Jesus points us to, why he came and what he's about to do. That's why he's pointing the disciples to that. You know, it's interesting, this phrase. You notice this phrase, son of man? Jesus likes to use it. It's the second time in this passage that he refers to himself as a son of man. And the question is, well, where does it come from? Uh, it comes from the book of Daniel, by the way. And Daniel was a book that all the Jews understood and they, 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 knew, they knew the book of Daniel inside and out. And if you know anything about the book of Daniel, Daniel has a vision of, 
of this very imposing figure who is the son of man. And he describes his legs as like bronze and he's wearing this robe that is bright and glowing and his hair is like lightning. Man, I wish I could have hair like that, you know. Uh, hair's like lightning and, and um, his voice thunders when he speaks. And so Daniel just falls on his face before him in worship. And see, what that tells us is there's no person on earth, there's no person in all of creation that, that deserves worship and honor and glory and majesty and, and that can match the holiness of Jesus. No one can. No one deserves the, the, the power and the, the position that he has. And yet, what do we know? That in his love for us, Jesus emptied himself of all of that so that he could come to this earth and take my place and your place on the cross. And I think that's at the heart of what it, what it means to have the power to begin living this inverted lifestyle, this lifestyle of service, because we realize how much Jesus sacrificed in love for us. And it just, it can't leave you the same. You, you can't just sit there and be unmoved by what, by what God has done for us. I, I, Paul says it in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a what? Of a servant, yeah. And being born in likeness of men and being obedient to death and even death on the cross. You see, that's the power to change when you realize the sacrifice of God's love for you and for me. Not, not manipulation, not guilt, not even Jesus' example of serving. You know, all the religious leaders who founded religions saw themselves as examples, except for Jesus. He didn't come to be an example. He came to die. I don't know if you've uh, heard the story of Sergeant Dennis Weichel. Dennis Weichel was killed in Afghanistan in 2014. He was from Rhode Island, and uh, he was on a mission. He was leading a convoy of military vehicles. They were going through eastern Afghanistan, and they, he was in the front uh, truck uh, doing some reconnaissance and scouting. And so he, they noticed a number of kids that were playing in the middle of the road where these huge trucks were going to be passing through. And so they pulled over on the side of the road. These kids were collecting shell casings because what they would do is take the shell casings and sell them and get a little bit of money for them. And so he, they got the kids off the side of the road. The convoy started going through. And then to his shock and horror, one of the one of these little kids, I, I think it was like a five or six-year-old little girl, darted in front of a 16-ton truck uh, who was just, uh, I don't know how much, it was just a big truck uh, going really, really fast. She darted in front of the truck to get this one shell casing, and he lunged for her to get her out of the way, and then he got run over by this, by this truck in the process, and it killed him instantly. Killed him instantly. He, he was only 28 years old. He'd been there two weeks and he died for this five-year-old little Afghani girl. You know, when you sign up in the military, you're, I mean, you know, 
you know what you're being called to do if you have to do it. You're willing to lay down your life for your country. You're willing to lay down your life for your, your comrades, your, your buddies that you're fighting with. You're, you're willing to do that. And in some cases, some soldiers are willing to lay down their life for you know, a non-combatant like this five-year-old little Afghani girl. And that's unbelievably heroic. You know, have you ever thought about this? What if, what if he did that for a member of the Taliban? What if he did it for a member of ISIS or a member of Al-Qaeda? What if there was some guy trying to kill him and his buddies and he saved this guy from death and giving his life from his own? What would you say about that? You would say no one does that. One person did. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus died for his enemies. He died for the very people who hung on that cross, that, that, that put him on that cross. He died for you and me, that while we were still sinners, he took our place on the cross. That's pretty amazing. That is the kind of sacrificial love that changes who you are when you embrace it by faith, when you embrace it through repentance and through humility. I don't know if you know the name Malcolm Mug Muggeridge. He was a crusty old World War II uh, war correspondent. He's not a Christian. He's very far from God, very hard uh, towards the things of God. And he spent a little bit of time with Mother Teresa in India, a little bit of time with her. And he experienced the sacrificial love of God through her ministry. And he just knelt and gave his life to Christ from spending time with her. And then I, I read about this guy, this, another World War II journalist. His name was Philip Haley. And uh, Philip Haley was doing a report on this little village in uh, Le Chambon, France. Little country village. Uh, and he wanted to go there because there were so many of these villagers that, that, that saved Jewish kids. And so he went to go uh, meet the pastor of this really small country church right there in Le Chambon. And, and, um, and this pastor and his wife facilitated the, the hiding of 3,000 Jewish kids from the Nazis. And he just wanted to go do a story about them. And he was crusty and old and cynical and all of that and and he began getting to know the pastor and he began getting to know some of the church members in the congregation and, and uh, he asked he asked some of the church members why why did you do this why did you risk your own life to save the lives of these of these Jewish kids and and so so many of the church members said well our pastor just told us that uh, God's going to bring opportunities in front of us to make a courageous decision to serve and and one of the ladies said we just knew it was our time to step up and serve and it just broke him and Philip Haley gave his life to Christ because of the sacrificial love of God that these this little these people in this church experienced See, church, you just, when, you, when you hear about it, you just can't stay the same. It just changes you on the inside because you realize you don't deserve it. But you received it anyway. 
And that's what it means to be a servant. And that's what it means to be a man. And I'm challenging our men to rise up and to serve in this way, to serve in love, to serve in humility, to serve your wife, to serve your family, to serve your community, and to serve your church. That's what greatness in the kingdom of God is all about. Everybody get it? Let's pray together. Lord, we're... uh, we're blown away by the good news of the gospel. It just never gets old, God. It never gets old hearing about your sacrificial love for us. You're serving us. We had turned our back from you, God. We had hardened our heart against you. We had stiff-armed you. We said to ourselves, we are able we can do it. We don't need God. And I pray, Lord, that you would just forgive us for saying that, for thinking that, for acting like that. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to what true greatness is, what the kingdom of God, what the order really is in the kingdom of God. And I pray that if somebody ever asked us what political party are we a part of, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just give us the perspective to say we're we're part of the kingdom of God. We just serve. We love. Because that's what our Savior did. So Lord, may that be true of us. May that be true of the marriages in our church and the future marriages that come out of this church. God, may it be true of how we raise our kids and and how how we relate to one another. And may, may the world come and see what the kingdom of God is like here. So I just pray that you would equip us and empower us and change us as men to take on the mantle of servant. And so we thank you and we praise you. And all of God's people said, amen.